Popular cinema is less becoming a place where we can publicly share our transgressive shadow desires. Well, nothing was more uncomfortable than we were kids watching a movie with your parents and there's a sex scene, right? That's the worst. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy. And 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 we're back uh, <laughs> with another episode, but things have been pretty heavy for the last few weeks, so we decided that we would do something a little bit lighter this week, and we're just going to talk about sex and movies. Yeah, Troy? <laughs> I feel like when we get light, it's when we talk about sports. But uh, I don't <laughs> know that true. our audience loves sports at dawn as much as movies at dawn. So maybe y'all should let us know. I like, know. When you need a break from the heavy, you know, like metaphysics and analytics stuff, do you prefer we go more towards the, the, like the movies direction, movies at dawn or sports at dawn? Some mm. kind of like combination of the two. How could we integrate mm. you know, this whole thing? Yeah. I do have this long-term project that I want to work on at some point in my life where I do like a like a deep academic political political economic examination of like sports unions, you know? Mm-hmm. And because people talk a lot about like union action and stuff like that, but we don't often talk about like what about the unions of the super rich, <laughs> you know? Um, but still, there's something really important about like collective bargaining and, and unions uh, at the a- athletic level that I think also has impact on other unions elsewhere, right? But I do want to do an academic study on that at some point in my life, probably when I'm in my 50s. So I'm not talking about this happening anytime soon. But at least then it won't be like as light and us just being like, whoa, dude, the game of basketball is beautiful, and now we can talk about beauty in relation to sports, you know? Yeah, it's one of those things where even at the the political economy level, um, normally we talk about like, well, you know, owners of capital don't do the work, you know, the laborers do. And of course, well, then why is capital needed? Well, in some sense, it's like, well, the laborers don't really have the, literally, the capital, to um, to like move around to make the company go. Right? It's part of the reason why unions, even when they're formed, are very strong. Don't tend to like go out and start businesses. And that's a you know common argument against sort of um, a a sort of socialism of like work like a work- workplace centered socialism or something. Right? Is that unions don't really do the kinds of things businesses do. Right? As far as like innovation, starting new businesses, whatever. Right? Um, well, who you know who does have the capital is like. Sports stars, like they have lots and lots mm. of money and oftentimes have half of, you know, like in basketball, they have half of the revenue that the league makes goes to the, the players, right? Um, so why don't mm. they just start their own leagues? They don't need the owners. The owners don't do anything other than own the brand of the teams. Why don't the players who do the work that makes the entertainment entertaining just start their own league? There was that Netflix movie um, four or five years ago, right? That basically was like, what if the players just kind of started their own league wouldn't it just be the same thing just without the history of the the current professional leagues can't remember what it was called something bird high flying bird does that sound familiar i don't know this who this wasn't the soderberg one was it i think it was the soderberg one wasn't it i never saw that if it was yeah i never saw that but i i think i i heard a bit about it but yeah yeah it was good but anyway yeah i'm interested in okay. that stuff too for those reasons 
Totally, totally. Yeah. The, the problem is, is who has all the network deals with TV and with all of the large media companies and things like that. And to, to break that, that stranglehold, that kind of habit, that is where I think the real hurdle is. And I imagine that they would have addressed that in the TV series. So now I need to watch that TV series, apparently. Yeah. And it is called High Flying Bird, by the way. Mm. Yeah. And is that the Soderbergh one? Is that is, that's the one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, fuck, that sounds great. Um, well, yeah, no sports today, uh, but movies. Movies and sex. Um, We're going to be framing our discussion around an article or an essay, I guess, that I read a little while ago and uh, that I forwarded to Troy because I think it touches on some really interesting things, but it's called The Puritanical Eye, Hypermediation, Sex on Film, and the Disavowal of Desire by DiCarli Gomez, who wrote, I think it's originally in Italian. Um, it says, this essay is a contribution to a special issue that explores the potential resurgence of the erotic thriller genre in contemporary U.S. media landscape, the erotic thriller in contemporary cinema and streaming, which is a special issue. But this was originally written in Italian. It looks like in il thriller erotico contemporaneo. Saji, um, and so anyway, it's from like the end of November, and uh, yeah, it touches on a lot of interesting things about like the consumption of bodies, mediated imagery, um, what's going on in like the world of uh, of Twitter outrage with how there shouldn't be sex on in films anymore, all kinds of things like that, and um, talks a little bit about Mark Fisher and a little bit about Zizek as well as other theorists talking about film and uh and a lot about verhoven as well if you're fans of paul verhoven's work so that is a little bit of a a taste to of what's to come in the main segment yeah dude yeah and we do want to mention before we start getting into the the meat of the episode that if you want to support us you can do so at patreon.com slash isles at dawn you can access there to a bunch of different goodies including access to our discord server so yeah patreon.com slash isles at dawn sick so before we get into talking about sexy stuff with films, you know that we got to do the shitty minute first. That's the part of the episode, for those who are unaware, where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, what's got you down? Well, so again, because it's been so heavy the last few weeks, I wanted to make my shitty minute like just like a classic like thing that just annoys me about like life and society. And it's um, the city of Sydney and I don't know, like, I, I haven't driven in Sydney that long. I've only been driving in Sydney for a couple of years. So, because before the first few years I was here, I, I mostly just took transportation, public transportation and walked. But um, but we've got a car now, and we drive sometimes. And, like, one, the streets just aren't designed very well, right? Like, Sydney, Sydney's city streets are, like, Melbourne is an amazing city. It's a grid city. It's flat. Uh, it's the, the the signs are well marked when you're driving. Sydney is not. Sydney's just not. You know, mm. like the streets are small. Um, like there's no there's no consistency with the street names. And then I think the thing that's the most annoying for me is that like it doesn't give you any time. You know, like because the streets are so huge in Southern California, you just have time, and they give you like clear indicators where it's like four miles from now you will have to be there's an exit for this and then five and a half miles is this exit and then in, but here all of a sudden you'll be driving and it's like you know 
like one kilometer. When you're driving 70, uh, 70 kilometers an hour, a kilometer is not that far. So if you're in one lane, it doesn't give you much time. And the drivers here are not nice. And that's really <laughs> what the shitty minute is. The drivers here, they're not nice people. Now, I don't know what they're like in their daily lives. I don't know what they're like when they go into a store. I don't know what they're like in their local soccer club. I have no idea what they're like. But when they get in the car, I'm convinced that they all become assholes here. They're so impatient. They're so pushy. They don't let people in. And they honk. And I hate honking. It feels so unnecessarily aggressive. The amount of times that I've seen people just honk when you didn't need to honk. Like the person was clearly just trying to get over because the the road is crunching and there's not enough. People just don't have like an awareness of how shitty the streets are. I think that's what it is. They don't have an awareness of anything else. So they don't realize like, hey, we got to be patient with each other because these streets are not very conducive to us figuring things out rather quickly or easily. And so they just fucking honk at each other. And then they do the thing that I hate more than anything, which is the stare down and drive by like after the honk. So it's like the person's trying to merge over because something happened. And here's the thing. You don't know what happened. Like maybe they were trying to dodge a a person in the street or maybe the car in front of them uh, did something silly. But no, you don't give a shit because the only thing that matters to you is that they somehow tried to merge over to you. And because you were driving too fast and you didn't want to create enough space for them to come over in the first place, now you honk at them. And then when they get to the lane on the other side of you, you do the slow drive-by and stare at them aggressively like you're going to fight them or something (laughs) like that. I hate that so much. It makes me so angry because you know what it reminds me? It's like fake tough guy shit. I hate fake tough guy shit. I hate it online. That's probably Mm. the thing where I hate it online and in the car. And And I figured out, I think what it is, you feel safe in your protective bubble. Online, you're safe because you're behind your device and you're at a distance from the person. If you were in front of that person, you would not be that tough because you'd probably be afraid that they'd smack you or they'd hit you. And you know what? I'm, I'm not an advocate for aggression, but I think with like online tough guy attitude, I wish those motherfuckers could get slapped sometimes because I just wish that you'd be like, why are you posturing like that? Like there are, you would never be like that to a person in, if you were in front of them, but because you are in a position of like some kind of weird power, I guess, because you're safe from them, you can be a totally just aberrant person. It's the same thing in the car. I think people feel protected because they're in their like 2000 pound weapon that they can then like be aggressive to other people and stare them down and i'm like fuck man i just sometimes we need a little bit of like the law of the jungle maybe you know like maybe we do need a little bit of that where it's like you stare down somebody that person should be able to be like okay you want to stare me down pull the car over and let's fucking fight you know let's see let's see if you're really that aggressive and that tough with your fucking horn that you're honking and of course do i really believe this no i don't really believe this what I really wish is that people would just be patient and understanding and kind and that it wouldn't happen in the first place. But the lizard brain in me wants to fight sometimes when I see that shit because I'm like, I wish that there would be some justice and some comeuppance for that fake fucking faux aggression, your faux tough guy shit. I can't stand it. It drives me crazy. So that's my shitty minute. Yeah, dude. I mean, this is a hobby horse of mine too. Like, so there's, there's oh, debate in... <laughs> of course, dude. Um, which is funny because I think both of us are, so let me give some context first. Like, there's a debate in ethics over, you know, what's called a situationist psychology. So the idea being basically like, is it the internal uh, dispositions and motivations of a person that generally determine their behavior or their contexts, right? Uh, okay. Of course, the, the answer is obviously both. Um, 
but yeah, tr- yeah. but there's been there was a movement in the 20th century towards situationism in psychology, which was like, well, no, the the situation or context plays a much larger role than internal motivations or dispositions do. Um, I think that's generally speaking wrong, but the kernel of truth in that is that there's you know an important role that situations and context play, and in some cases, it's going to play a much larger role than it does in other cases, and it does seem like online um, discourse and then the way we treat others when we're in our cars are like the two most extreme examples of that, where people seem to be completely <laughs> different than they are yeah. in the normal course of things. But it's so funny, right? Because I think maybe I'm just, you know, myopic about this whole thing, but you and I are people who aren't like that. Like I never get road rage. Um, and I don't think I really ever, you know, get mad online. I'm kind of the same person in almost any situation. I feel like you are mm. too. We're very different psychologically, mm. but we have this kind of consistency across situations, you know, most normal situations, you know, extreme situations aside. Um, but there is something about um, these kinds of unique situations. And they're not even extreme, right? People are online all the time. People are in cars all the time. And yet they can sometimes become, you know, um, Mr. Hyde's when they're doing so. And I, yeah, it's hard mm. for me to understand, like, is it, so people often say, like, the reason why people are assholes online isn't just because of the anonymity. Oh, that's part of it, right? The sort of, you know, no consequences part of it. But also, um, there's something about the lack of norms around discourse online, right? And oftentimes people aren't Mm. necessarily trying to be assholes so much as they're responding to a situation incorrectly because they don't have sort of norms to follow about how to deal with it. So, like, it's the idea, it's the fact, like, the phenomenon where people are constantly misinterpreting people on social media as saying the worst possible version of what they're actually saying, mm, right? Mm, mm. Um, yeah, that- and then what that leads to is now everybody has to always like overqualify everything they're saying. Mm-hmm. So that you can't even ask a question. You can't even be like, oh, here's my question. You have to be like, by the way, this is a legitimate question so that you don't think I'm being snarky. And then it's like we're just endlessly qualifying ourselves and then snarkily responding to ourselves until we die. That's what online discourse is. Which I, I get that in the online context, right? But that doesn't transfer over to the car context because we've been driving cars. Everybody who's alive has been driving cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So since they were, you know, able it's to not a new cars, invention for us. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not new. So how can there not be norms around it? And there sometimes are, but it's sort of, you know, it's not really solidified, which makes me despair a little bit. Like, if we haven't developed norms around appropriate car-based behavior. Are we ever going to do it with online behavior? <laughs> or is it always going to be well, like this? Well, with car-based behavior, it's contextual too, right? Like, so I was in the States and my mom just recently moved to Texas. And as soon as she picked me up, she's like, they're going to, they'll run you over here where she lives. She's like outside Waco. And she's like, these, these big fucking pickup trucks, they just fly and they will overtake you and they just barrel down the road. And she was right. They were quite like... I, I almost hesitate to say aggressive. In her in her interpretation of it was aggressive. In my interpretation of it, it was kind of reckless, right? Which mm-hmm. could they, they could both be true, but I didn't see them as like being angry. So the Sydney thing feels more aggressive to me because it's like the Texan one is like I'm just fucking going later, you know. And the Sydney one is like, get the fuck out of my way, you fucking. Why are you inconveniencing me, you fuck? Now maybe that's just because. I'm here and I'm feeling it a different way and my mom's embedded in that context and she's feeling it that way. I don't know. But that's just my sense of it, right? And then, but then I wonder, 
because then so maybe there's like rules maybe in texas the rules are yeah you can just fucking be a bit more free with how you drive and it's cool if you just fucking i'm out later peace eat my dirt sort of thing and then here maybe the rules are like you better be fucking on it because if you're not fucking on it then you're you're slowing down the flow of capital because i gotta get to my office or i gotta get to go this other thing and and roads are just kind of conduits for transporting you know commodity flows so you get the fuck out of my way because and that's one of the things i do wonder if a city like sydney that is so consumerist that if it has hasn't translated into the streets and then here's the difference New York, a honky city. Uh, not honky in like, <laughs> like a derogatory term. A city that where there's a lot of honking, right? So you'd have to talk to people in New York. Maybe there is a set of norms in New York. And it's different than where we come in Southern California. Not a very honky city, right? Especially in the suburbs more. It's not very honky, right? Honking is a bit more aggressive. And we kind of like think of New York drivers when they come. I remember even being in the car many times with people. And you would hear other people honking, and the, the joke was they must be from New York or they must be from the East Coast, right? As yeah, like kind yeah. of a joke. And and then in Melbourne, for example, Melbourne, the people are so nice. And we noticed this when we were there last year because they like – so in the UK and in Australia, pedestrians don't have right of way, right? And as a matter of fact, sometimes cars will speed up when you're crossing the road to be like get the fuck out of the road like like literally right now they're not going to actually hit you but you know there's a little bit of aggression in that action in melbourne it's not that way in melbourne pedestrians they give you the right away they slow down for you even when you're not at like a zebra crossing which is the zebra crossing is when pedestrians do have right away right but they slow down for you when you're just there and they just kind of like wave you on to go. And they let people in. And there was way less honking. And and it was something that was like so palpably noticed. And people are also much more – they have much more time for you. They say hi to you in the stores and things like that. So I do think that there's like a set of norms maybe around like the pace of the place. You know, New York is a fast-paced mm. place. Get the fuck out of my way. You better go. I'm going to honk. It's much more kind of stereotypically aggressive. Southern California is a little more beachy, laid back. We got time. Everything's good. You know, we're not in such a big rush. I got my Hawaiian shirt on while I'm going to the fucking office or whatever kind of attitude. Sydney, I think people get Sydney twisted. From afar, people think Sydney's like beach and surfy. And yeah, there is a bit of that. But like the roads, the city, it's fucking go, 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 go. It's like you know, finance capital of, uh, of Oceana. So like maybe the flows need to be faster. Melbourne, you know, a little more culture, a little more art. Maybe people are a little bit more kind of, you know, kumbaya. I don't know. That's just my bullshit theory, but it feels that way. So maybe there are norms. They're just the norms of the city that get translated over into the road. Yeah, that makes sense. I think my complaint then is just that the norms all suck. And some of them suck a lot, worse, <laughs> a lot more than others do. But this this is just fodder. Yeah. This is just more argumentative fodder from my favorite hot take, which is that the uh, personal automobile is the uh, most destructive invention yeah. of all humankind, even more so than <laughs> nuclear weapons. So far, yeah. nu- nuclear weapons yeah. could overtake it in the future if something you know nuclear winter were to occur. But as of now, cars are the most destructive invention. And the underrated part of that argument, like it's easy to talk about, like you know, climate change and all the destruct, destruction to infrastructure and to cities or urban, uh, urban centers and stuff like that. That's all obvious, right? The underrated part of my argument, I think, that people don't uh, recognize until you think about it, is what it's done to individuals and, and culture. 
So sort of the way that it influences people's um, individual behavior and um, their reasoning patterns and things like that. And a big part of that is just this idea that cars own the road and that um, having a car gives you a license to behave in ways that you wouldn't behave in any other context, right? And I think there's a sort of Hmm. decaying of the moral fabric that happens when we're constantly driving and reassuring ourselves that we have these rights that we would not um, think that we have in any other context. So yeah, Mm. cars suck. They make us worse people. They make our cities worse places. They make the world worse (laughs) and they're the most destructive destructive inventions in human history. So there you go. But Jack Kerouac taught us that the car is like the the vehicle of freedom bro get on the road and fucking drive and that's your rite of passage as a as a as a as a western youth you get in that car and that's where you get power and freedom and autonomy get never been the a wheel and go baby never been a worse prediction than that sorry jack <laughs> all right let's get into the main segment here um, cool. So, as I said at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about this essay by D. Carly Gomez called The Puritanical Eye, subtitled Hypermediation, Sex on Film, and the Disavowal of Desire. And they start the essay off by saying, Are movies having enough sex? Troy, are movies having enough sex? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, it seems to me like the, the thesis of the of the piece is more... There's less sex. So let me quote what I think is the, the thesis of the essay here. Um, there was a time when as moviegoers, we were part of the show, when our participation in the story with our hearts, our minds, our bodies was part of the experience of watching the film and essentially completed the work itself. That time is gone. Mm. And so that, that seems like, yeah, it seems like the, the piece is generally trying to say, look, we have this phenomenon, which is inarguable, which is there used to be an erotic Um, character to films um, that peaked probably in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and that's that's gone. And that sort of begs for explanation, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Why is that the case? You would think that um, there was this kind of trajectory there where the 70s, 80s, 90s, you're seeing more and more eroticism in films, um, seem to be a sort of opening up, up of sexual freedom in art generally, but films specifically. That has reversed. That trend is reversed. So why is that? And are there? Uh, and there seem to be many reasons that are posited for why that's occurring. And I'm and I'm curious about some of them. Um, so yeah, what do you think about that? Do you think movies are having enough sex? Are they what? Are they having enough sex? Here's the thing. Like it depends on. It's like selection bias, right? Like what movies are you watching? Um, I do think that some of the discourse surrounding sex in movies is um is moving in a direction that obviously this essay talks about but that is moving in a direction that is much more hyper consumerist um much more um just about like sleek perfect imagery that can be consumed as a like simple consumptive product and i think that that is a that is both a driving Influence, but also a sort of reflective mirror of something that's happening within our society in perpetually. Something that theorists, like media theorists, have been writing about for ages. Like, like even Baudrillard's the idea of like you know the the simulacra. Like this is something that this touches on, right? So this isn't something that is like 
a 21st century social media Instagram phenomenon per se. It's just that it's becoming more intensified with these new forms of um, like mediatized imagery that are shared and swapped as the first point of contact for our production and consumption of artistic imagery. But like, so I do think, I do think that and then the question is, so then what does that mean for the sex that is being played out on screen? Is it actually sex or is it something else? And then, you know, we need to talk about the idea of like sex as a connection to the real as this author does um, or like fantasy as being like a screen that is always kind of like there covering over the real, which again, this author delves into. Um, and so I think that there's something interesting about like the exchange of the fantastic image that has always been a part of like media production and consumption and... and um, and I don't think that that's. I don't think that the like, that the, like the solution is to be like, well, what we need is just more sex on screen because then that's more real or something like that. And I don't think that's what the author is saying either. You know, I think that would be like a sort of more, kind of easy, facile like response, which sometimes you do get within like raunch culture. Like there is like like a little bit of raunch culture that's like ah, oh, we just need more of it. And I'm like, well, but it's not just about more of it in a quantitative sense. Like, there's a qualitative issue that's going on here. And I think that's one of the things that the author talks about that I find interesting um, with regards to, like, the possibility of bodies and and otherness and, like, the messiness of a non-acetized image um, that, 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 that happens when you just have bodies and, and um, something that is excessive when you encounter that. That it kind of gets you to something that is, you know, uh, tending towards the real. And I think that is something that is not being explored enough in movies. And I think that it's, we've talked about this with like the YAification of everything. Or, you know, um, you could talk about it like with regards to like Marvel films and like the Four Quadrant films. um, Where it's like nothing can be a risk. Everything has to be always already pre-coded as being safe for consumption by as many people as possible to drive as many eyeballs to inflate the value of the asset, right? The film asset um, for the books of the people who own it so that they can, you know, enrich their, um, their pockets with like stock valuations and getting more funding for future projects and, you know, paying out bonuses to their, uh, the, the board members or whatever the fuck their, their programs are, right? So, like, there's a cynicism in this that needs to be understood as well. But the thing that I think that is beautiful about what you just said with that thesis, there was a time when, as moviegoers, we were part of the show. I say this all the time, that, like, the one thing I do wonder is, is I don't think that, like, especially in the theater... But I think even with when we go to the movie, I don't think that spectators are merely passive receivers. I think that, like, if there were no audience, and there are some artistic projects that don't have an audience, but artistic projects that are performed in front of an audience, I think that there's something added to the performance in the reception, which means mm-hmm. that I do think that there's always this, like, engagement or participatory relation between the spectator and, you know, the performer or the performance or the film or the product or the art piece or whatever, especially with performing arts, right, that I think is so integral to the actual, like, reality of the product of the art piece itself that needs to be understood. And so I don't think that we're less a part of the show. I just think that 
the way that we're a part of the show needs to be understood under a different regime of like, you know, the asset or the commodity. It needs to be understood differently. And that's what I think is so interesting about this essay for me is that it kind of gets me thinking in that direction is is the way that we are involved as participants is still as active participants, but we're active participants with like an asterisk next to it in a different way than we may have been in previous, you know, regimes or under previous regimes. Yeah, there's there's so much there. Dude. I want to put a pin in this whole discussion about um, the way in which audiences are active participants, because that's actually the thing I wanted to talk most with you about, since I found that to be the most intriguing part of this essay. And especially I want to put a pin in the idea that um, when can that relationship between um, the creators and the audience be, when can tension be appropriate, right? in that mm. um, relationship. Because Verhoeven is quoted a few times here um, in ways where he's something like uh, instigating or being antagonistic mm-hmm. towards the audience or uh, being accusatory towards the audience. Uh, it's sometimes an appropriate um, way for the artists to, to conceive the relationship between the, the work of art and the audience. And I was curious to get your thoughts on that. But before we get to that, though, I do want to mention mm-hmm. that like, One thing I struggle with in this whole discussion, and I don't think this was necessarily a problem with the essay, although it wasn't clear exactly how some of this stuff fit in together. There's there's discussion, there's often confusion, I think, between the way people on social media discuss a phenomenon and what's causing the phenomenon, as if the way people are discussing it is the cause of it. And that's almost never true, right? The discussion is almost always Mm -hmm. the trailing phenomenon, right? Um, and rarely ever the, the cause of the thing. And so, like, there's discussion about, it's in the subtitle of the essay, right? Uh, Puritanism, it's puritanical I, right? Um, and there's a lot to say about contemporary Puritanism in American culture, especially around media, right? But, and I don't think the essay is saying this is like a unilateral thing where Puritanism is like the cultural thing that's causing um, the lack of sex in films. Like, in, in like a in a truly unilateral sense, right? There's there's some cause and effect relationship there, but um, it's it's complicated. I I don't think we should conclude that there's like people have become more puritanical, and so the creators of the of films are now removing sexy stuff from their films to please a more puritanical audience. Like a you know, there's so many things wrong. I think with that argument. And especially when you consider that, when was the most conservative time in America in recent history? It was the 80s, during the Reagan era. And that's actually when you see some of the most, you know, sex-filled films and most sort of extreme um, sort of examples of sex and violence and things like that in in media. So there's no kind of one-to-one correspondence there. It seems to me like the the mm-hmm. major causal phenomenon here is exactly what you said, which is that films are seen much more as assets and those assets need to appeal to the broadest audience possible, not just the four oh, wait, quadrants. Let me, let, me, let me ask you this real quick. Going back to the Reagan thing, don't forget that bit about like the the the, the, the causal yeah. component. Don't forget that. But like, do you think there's a sense though that so the Reagan era, Thatcher Reagan is conservative as a sort of implementation of a program that has cultural knock-on effects? But that it maybe took a while for those cultural knock-on effects to actually take root. So that culture is kind of downstream from 
economics and politics in this argument. And um, so like what started in the 80s and then like the alignment of like, you know, the silent majority and, and like the sort of elevation of American evangelicalism as a political force and then as a cultural force didn't start to take root until then you get like fucking Tipper Gore and like, um, you know, the censorship wars in the 90s. Um, and then you get, which is also rated uh, related to like certain race issues that are related to the kind of rise of neoliberal conservatism and the war on drugs that then goes back to like the 70s, but then into the 80s. And so then what I'm wondering is, is like it just took a while for this transformation of cultural um, like appearance to come to the fore. And so you get the 90s and the 2000s now that start to actually become like the payoff of that conservative revolution, especially with like the dominance of third way politics where you have an extreme center now and there's no real left anymore. There's no real transgression to a sort of like center anymore. And that that's now we're seeing that spilling over into cultural artifacts, but what was initiated politically and economically, you know, a few decades ago. I just think the problem with that explanation is that that's not true in other areas in culture, right? Movies seem to stand out in this regard. Music is, I think, much less uh, conservative as far as content is concerned than it was at the time, mostly because music is really easy to make, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can yeah. make music in your living room with free software as long as you have a computer, right? Movies cost lots and lots of money to make with you know, a few uh, counterexamples. So it seems to me like the big difference is just movies cost a lot of money. So they have this sort of assetization phenomenon occurring in that industry that it doesn't happen when it comes to books and music and in other areas, right? So it seems like it's kind of, I don't know, it seems like um, it's taking one phenomenon uh, in one industry and saying, well, this is happening universally and this is just how it's coming out in movies. And I just don't think that can be a satisfying explanation when it seems pretty unique to the film industry. I mean, I could be wrong about that. I'm just sort of, you know, looking at well, the outside. Well, there were like the British nasties and things like that. There was a pretty strong effort to, to censor certain films and films were getting cut, you know, because you couldn't show certain things. And so the rating agencies started to gain more power. And so you do see like a slow encroachment of that as well. You know, back when we need to put period talking here. Well, in like the eighties and nineties, there um, there was like a real effort towards censorship of certain things. Like, remember when we were kids and there was what was that fucking movie, Faces of Death? Remember that thing? Or it was like, did you remember that? Did you hear about that when you were a kid? Do you I know what I'm talking about? I don't about? think so. I don't think so. No. It's like this band, cob cob like cobbled together um, montage of like real deaths like some of them are real deaths and some of them are like i think like uh like you know cannibal holocaust like type of type of things you know where it's like you don't know if it's real or not and the lore around it is that it's real and um i just remember when i was like 11 years old 12 years old it was like or 10 years old you you we had like a friend that had an older brother that was like they can get faces of death and i never watched it because i think it would have fucking i'm so glad i didn't it would have scarred me i think as a 10 year old 11 year old watching because some of them are like real actual deaths you know of course the difference now is all you got to do is log on to twitter and you can see real deaths all the fucking time but like but that was a film that was like banned you know and there were a lot of efforts in the 90s to ban films from people getting their hands on them and they were like um 
you know, like this this big movie, like the British Nasties is one of them, where it's like there were all these films that were censored by, you know, conservative British elites so that audiences wouldn't watch them. And then afterwards, you know, in like the 2000s and stuff like that, like films now that were part of like the Nasties, they've now gained kind of a cult following because they were so, so deemed. But um, so I do think there was an effort to try to censor in film as well. Oh, no. Or I mean, like, you know, on the... Ch- that's yeah. part oh, of my argument, though. That's part of my argument, though, is that the 80s and 90s, especially the 80s, were more conservative. So there was more of an effort and more power by agencies like the PMRC, for instance, to get oh, music okay, banned. Yeah. And that I don't think, I mean, there's some ways in which I think portions of the culture are more puritanical about certain issues now than in previous decades. But I don't think we're overall more puritanical than we were before. I mean, think about the status of, of pornography now, right? Can you imagine telling Chipper Gore in the 80s or whomever, um, that porn would be as easily accessible to children as it is today. And that mm. basically people are just kind of like, yeah, probably not a good thing, but whatever. <laughs> like they would they would lose their minds. They'd consider that to be the, the worst thing to be happening in the entire world, right? So mm. I think in some ways we've a lot of um, the more even conservative segments of the of the culture has sort of given up on on certain issues like that, where it's just like, well, the internet is ubiquitous. It's too pervasive. You're never going to stop it. So things like being able to watch people, you know, die on Twitter or whatever, or easy access to pornography on the internet. It's just the kind of thing where people have sort of given up on that. And that makes me think, you know, sex definitely has disappeared from movies. That's certainly true, right? Um, has it disappeared from other artistic mediums? And I I mean, I don't want to just, you know, make a blanket statement about that without doing like the research or whatever, but it seems to me like on the surface, no, music seems to have mm. more sex more, than it ever yeah. has before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And explorations of sexual freedom more so than ever before. I mean, just think of all the incredible trans artists that are out there that are in pop music, especially in the form of like hyper pop and whatnot, leading the way um, in the field of musical innovation and pop music. Um Think about literature. Like, I don't think that sex has ever been as more pervasive in literature. It seems like there's an entire industry around that kind of stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. It seems like movies are kind of a unique case here. I mean, am I, am I wrong in thinking there's something mm. specific about sex on the screen in addition to the mm-hmm. sort of industry industry factors as far as movies being more expensive that has led to um, this kind of thing? In addition to some degree, I think, of of, of Puritanism when it comes to sort of policing whether or not there should be sex in films or the purpose of sex in films, which I think is an appropriate discussion point to have because there is discussion around that that I think is puritanical and, and pretty misguided. Um, but it seems to me like there's there's a confluence of factors here um, mm. that are fairly unique to film. I don't know. What do you think about that? I'm wonder- You're making me wonder if the part of the revolution is – is analogous to the historical shift that you got from, you know, um, like canvas arts moving away from realism because of the development of cameras, right? So no longer were artists like, oh, well, we're going to paint realism. No, we can't do that because we got fucking cameras that are going to do that. So we're going to start engaging in more Mm. abstract art and surrealism, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if there's something similar here. It's like, well, wait a second. Sex is being expressed in... It happened on screen. We saw it. We explored it. That's fine. It's being explored in so many different other areas outside of the visual medium than where it was kind of portrayed before. And so we're exploring other things now. Like... We've moved on from that in this visual media, you know, like, 
no longer are films going to be primarily interested in that because we got fucking you know uh, our music in in the in the audio realm and that's a different way that we are exploring sexuality now um it, it feels is there an analog there maybe I don't know. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, my, my initial inclination is to think that there's something, you know, sex obviously um, and sexiness incorporates all the senses. But there's something especially visual about it, right? Um, and so it seems like film would be the medium as well as, you know, like photographic art and whatnot. Um, um, and like, you know, oil on canvas would be the sort of principal modes of exploring a kind of sexiness. Not that you couldn't do it in audio formats and in literature formats, but there's something kind of specially visual about it. So could could film ever really do that, like move away from that without losing something to its core? So my inclination is to think, well, if that if that kind of thing is disappearing from film, that seems like not necessarily, not likely to be a good um, trend or a good uh, movement and especially I think when you consider the reasons why it's disappearing from film it doesn't seem like it's like a genuine artistic trend or genuine uh, um, authentic artistic movement away from that stuff to right. explore other things it seems more like it's just ceasing to Cynical, actually function as economic. art <laughs> like what's the function of art and it's going away from that well here's the thing that I wonder so you say that like you know one of the things that's integral to sexuality is the visual but isn't maybe the thing that's more integral to sexuality the fantasy and the imagination? Which then makes me think that's why like the literature world and audiobooks serve as such like this interesting place where people can transgress privately, right? Like you can mm-hmm. listen to your dirty book or you can read it, you know, but in a in a space that isn't so public. And it's almost like going to like like the old school, you know, X-rated movie theaters in like the seventies or something like that, right? It's like a secret place that you can go, but now you're safe, and you can and you can totally allow your freak flag to fly in private. But then online, you can be like, we've got to make sure that you know we respect. It's like the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing. People were like, this is taking feminism back. 50 years or whatever blah 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 because <laughs> this woman who wants to be dominated I don't know like like there, there's something interesting in that contradiction right that it's like people as much as we live in a society that is so concerned with, with equality of sexual relations and things like that there's still a lot of people who do want to experience the kind of more transgressive and the the um, the, the, the stigmatizer the non uh, the non-appropriate right and like so maybe it's just the sight of where we can experience the inappropriate is changing a little bit and then so what that makes me wonder is is i don't think that sex is like disappearing from the screen i think it's just being maybe sublimated or uh, it's being transformed in different ways and that that's where i actually think is what's interesting and so this article references another article that's called like everyone is beautiful but no one is horny which is a great title but it's, it's basically title, about yeah. like <laughs> you look at all of our superheroes now and you know like they're fucking gorgeous and their bodies are perfect and they got the abs and they got the butts and they got the boobs and they got the shoulders and they got the arms and they got the hair and the teeth and the smile and the eyes and whatever else all the stuff that is like held up as the pinnacle of our sexual desires and fantasy but none of them fuck <laughs> None of them exude any sort of sexual allure. All of them are all presented 
and there's no mystery hidden. There's no seduction. And maybe this fits in with what like Byung-Chul Han calls like, the pornification of society, where everything is always presented already because there's no otherness. And in so doing, that kind of like saps the vitality of sensuality, of desire, and of sexuality because there's nothing for us to hook onto to pull us in, right? And everything is just all there on the surface. And then I think what that does is that that transforms the sexual. It's not that the sexual is gone. It's just that the sexual as seductive or the sexual as um, an expression of desire is transformed through this superficial, hollowed out, um, commodified image that doesn't have that same desire that pulls you in or that doesn't have that same possibility to get you to confront your own inner darkness your shadow or you know whatever it is that 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 might force you to admit that you actually have some inappropriate desires and feelings and thoughts and like there's a darkness within you right and i think maybe that's part of it maybe that's part of like what this author is calling like puritanism is that maybe it's difficult for us to because I do think that there's something that like all of our media imagery, all of our commodities are in some ways reflections of us, right? Like they're feeding back to us desires. Like why is it that we want to consume that thing? Well, we want to consume that thing because it's desirable. Well, why is it desirable? A lot of different reasons why it might be desirable. But so let's say a commoditized image. Like why is, uh, you know, uh, Chris Hensworth and Scarlett Johansson, why are they put on screen as like these desirable images are they for us to emulate for us to, to want to be like for us to want to be close to for us to want to hook up with like what is what is the purpose of them i don't know but there's something that's that's being fed back to us as like a reflection of well here you are this is what you want kind of thing and what you want is is being fed back to you in a, in a package that is like a beautified version of your desire and then the problem is is when that's all you get when that's proliferated then all you get is a sort of like smoothed out expression of what your desires are and then it cuts off those other parts of you that might potentially need an outlet. And then, of course, that's why then you have like the dirty magazine or the, not the dirty magazine, the dirty, um, the dirty audiobook that you can go listen to. Or you have the porn that you can just go access, you know, on your phone or on your laptop or on your Google, Google glasses or whatever it is while you're driving in your car. Um, do you remember those adverts? Unfortunately, like, yes. <laughs> Google Glass would be a horrible idea because people are just going to watch porn and crash. Um, but you know what I mean? So maybe that's it, is that is that it's like changing. And so it's becoming – cinema is – popular cinema is less becoming a place where we can publicly share our transgressive shadow desires or something. Yeah, I mean I think it's definitely right that um, there's a sense in which in popular cinema the – the sexual desire has been sublimated into something else because it's one because it's not appealing to both international markets and towards you know um, the four quadrants, um, but also because there's a kind of uncomfortability in film, which is I guess more than other media usually consumed with other people, um, if you exclude like concerts with music, right? Um, and that can be uncomfortable. Nothing was more uncomfortable than we were kids watching a movie with your parents and there's a sex scene, right? That's the worst thing. You just want to leave and never come back when that kind of thing happens <laughs> as a kid in the 90s, right? Um, at the same time, I wonder, not that this is in competition with that explanation, but sort of a, a supplementary reason is like there's something that's kind of a moral quicksand about sex in movies nowadays. 
So there's a lot of discussion in the essay about Euphoria, the HBO show. And I've never watched mm-hmm. Euphoria, but I know people discuss the that it's it's probably the most like sexually adventurous uh, mainstream television show. And it involves teenagers, so it's especially um, controversial for that reason, I think, right? And I was thinking, you know, if you think about – and you mentioned Scarlett Johansson, which I think is appropriate to like trace her career as one that sort of figures this – point that I'm trying to make. Like, think about Match Point, the Woody Allen film from like the mid 2000s, right? Or maybe it was like the late 2000s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sticks in my mind as the sexiest movie I've ever seen in theaters. Someone just did a scene from that in my acting class and it was so sexy. It's so good. I know you can't say Woody Allen movies are good anymore um, because he's canceled, but that's an incredible movie. Um, Yeah. And then... And then after sort of the sexualization of Scarlett Johansson that follows from that movie, she does Under the Skin, right? Which is like a rejection of that, right? Oh, you think I'm just here to be consumed? Well, I kill you, (laughs) Mm, right? mm -hmm. Um, And then now you think about Scarlett Johansson, she's in like basically Marvel movies and there's, you know, obviously those are completely de-sexed in every way and de-eroticized in Mm. every way. Um, And it's interesting that there's like a, there's something about sex and film, maybe even more so than in music, which is somewhat um, individual, right? The artists are sort of exploring sex from their own point of view. So they have some autonomy and authority over their own experience, right? And then literature, which I don't even know how to address that. But, you know, um, in movies, it seems like it's impossible not to get into the moral quicksand. If you step in it, you're going to sink in it because sex is like the most morally confusing thing that we do. Maybe besides like, I don't know, parenting or something like those are the top ones. Right. Um, there's a sense in which in sex, you see the other person as an object and that's in almost every context morally problematic. And so there has to be like integration of seeing the other person as an object, but also as a person that you respect and that you care for. And, you know, sexual relationships are great when those two things are integrated, but it's really hard to integrate them. And it's really hard to know when the other person that you're with has like done that successfully, right? There's lots of, you know, boundaries of trust and stuff that have to, have to exist. And it's hard to mm. present that in film in a way that speaks to all those elements, right? It's, it's a kind of a quagmire or like a quicksand. And so it seems like maybe a lot of films just, just leave that. Right, they hire intimacy coordinators or whatever, right, on, on like the production side to help get rid of some of that or help resolve some of that um, quagmire. But that doesn't do anything about the sort of um, phenomenon that's created b- between the the art, the artistic object, and the audience, right, and how they um, participate in it and, and consume it. So it does seem like maybe some films, especially mainstream ones, not j- obviously for like the asset reasons, like they want to appeal to a you know, Chinese audience and whatnot, right? They don't want to get censored. Um, they want to get teenagers to in, in the film to see it, right? Um, but additionally, it's like, it's really hard to do these things well. Like think about Match Point in comparison to, have you seen May, December yet? Uh, no, I haven't. And I really, 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 really want to. Yeah, it's wonderful. There's Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. And that movie is basically an entire exploration of all the moral problems that come with with sex and with sexual desire. And like, that's a very unsexy movie with sexy people in it because it's just like, how can you even understand this thing? 
it's it's just like it's such a quagmire. It's you'd have to like know everything or be like omniscient to be able to do sex rightly or have a sexual relationship that's like good and right and pure. Um, and that seems like in one sense a good thing because we want to explore um, the moral elements of of sex and sexual relationships. But then at the other side, it's like, well, if it's that difficult, like do we just get rid of it <laughs> at a certain point? Um, mm. So yeah, I wonder a bit about whether or not films have reflected a problem in our own culture, which is that we're, we seem unable with the moral concepts and tools that we have to think about sex well. And we don't do it well, especially in public discourse and conversation. And so f- film and maybe art in general has just sort of decided to let that one go for a while because there's no way to do it without falling into quicksand and ended up being you know, canceled or heavily criticized or whatever for doing so. And maybe if you're a director or a screenwriter or something ruining your career um, or setting back your career at least by by trying to do this thing, which there's almost no way to do it well. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think... So, so do you think this is a particularly American phenomenon? Because one of the things the article does seem to explore is that in Europe, this isn't a problem, which is why you get Verhoeven, who's like European, who got distribution through France, yada, 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 right? And I remember just a few years ago, there was this project from like Gaspar Noé and a bunch of, uh, well, he's like Argentinian French, but uh, of, of kind of like non-American filmmakers who are exploring like the limits between sex and pornography and what you can do in, in cinema. And I think it was called like Districted or something like that. And, you know, Noé's films are quite explicit just in general, like, um, you know, Enter the Void is is really kind of trying to be, I think, very sort of in your face on purpose. And so I do mm-hmm. wonder if there's something, and this is something growing up that you always hear, right? Like, oh, the Europeans are just fucking, they're just obsessed with sex, right? You know, Americans in their kind of like own, I do think there's an American Puritanism. That, that does take hold in particularly conservative areas. But, like, sure. I remember hearing that a lot, right? Like, like there's just naked statues everywhere. And the French, they're just so free with their sexuality. And, like, like French monogamy is, like, like a man, his wife, and his mistress. And that might be true. <laughs> but, um, but, like, you know, there's all these, like, derogatory conceptions about, like, European, like, libertinism or something like that. So do you think this is, like, a particularly American thing? Or do you think that there is, like, a sort of, like a real radical difference globally, regionally. There's one sense in which it definitely is uh, a um, uniquely kind of American phenomenon, right? Given all the things you just said. And then, and then um, it's right to point out like um, European filmmakers making these fairly transgressive, heavily sexualized films, and then they don't do well here or are criticized in America by American uh, media critics for, you know, being seemingly like an affront or aggressive or, uh, antagonistic or accusatory, right? Trying to like beat you over the head with sex to shock you or something. Um, and what I thought was funny was that in the in the essay, there's this talk about you know this, this quote of Verhoeven um, being criticized for by American critics for what was the the most recent film about the nuns that he made? Um, Benedetta. Yeah, Benedetta. That's the one about the nuns, right? I didn't. I see haven't it. seen it. I really want to see it. Yeah, so, and there was accusations from American media critics that it was sort of um, sex for its own sake or for shock value or something like that, as if that was a sort of um, unacceptable or inappropriate uh, or maybe like childish way for a film to approach its audience. This is what I was talking about back when we started talking about when, what's the appropriate relationship between a film and its audience and when can that relationship have tension in it? 
And what was funny about those critics was that I was thinking, you know, is there any way that a film about this subject could be presented where you wouldn't criticize it? It's like a double bind, right? Yeah. If you have a film about this well, I think subject... That's- that's what the Districted Project, I think, was trying to do. It was trying to be like, oh, you think that, like, sex for sex's sake is just, like, uh, you know, this, like, superficial thing? Well, we're going to just fucking throw it in your face. And it, it, it was kind of like, we're going to see what are those limits at which we can still call what we're doing, like, auteur art, while also then having just, like, shitloads of unsimulated sex. Yeah, if you do a film about a bunch of nuns and you never mention anything about sex at all, it's going to be like, like, what the fuck is this? Right. <laughs> um, like they're, they're, they're repressing something about themselves. How does it affect them? Like talk about it. Even if it doesn't mm. have sex in it, it's like you're purposefully leaving it out if you don't talk about it. Um, and that seems to be the case in a lot of the sort of what you call the YAification of, of arts um, and in popular films, just sort of skirting over sex, not even using innuendo or things, just completely removing it as if it's not a thing that exists in that world, right? Um, and that seems like the kind of thing where at that point, it's not even a reflection in any way of real life at that point. Um, at least in the olden days, you could use, like in, even in the 40s and 50s, you could use innuendo hmm. to get the things that you wouldn't um, get through censorship protocols and stuff like that. Uh, we don't even have that anymore in like Marvel movies and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like there's a kind of, in America, at least a double bind where there's no way for you to do sex without getting criticized one way or the other. So everyone just doesn't do it. And maybe in, in European films, it doesn't happen. But I also wonder if there's something that's kind of lost there because it's not entirely or like intrinsically bad that Americans, I think, think more about the morality of sex possibly than Europeans do. I think it's actually kind of reflective of a somewhat good trait that we have which is that we want to think about the moral issues surrounding sex. It just seems like we've done so in a way that's a mobilized, um, a mobilized sort of presentation of sex in media and maybe even a mobilized mm. like critical thinking about the issue. Like we just kind of realized that it's too hard to think about. So we just don't think about it. And that seems like worse than, than like the, whatever the stereotypical or paradigmatic European phenomenon around sex is like too much sexual freedom and too little thinking about it critically is probably better than thinking yourself into paralysis <laughs> about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, I think a happy medium, a synthesis would be like thinking about it critically in a way that also leaves room for the fact that, hey, sex is really important to human life. And if your outcome is just don't think about it, that's really bad. <laughs> or like thinking, think about it to the point of, of paralysis and eliminating it from any you know, talk about any presentation in media would also be like, well, our thinking must have gone wrong somewhere if it led to that conclusion, right? Do do you think that, like, so I, I'm my mind is kind of thinking here about like you know like in the in the Frankfurt School in the 20th century they talked about like repressive desublimation and then um, that's been kind of taken up and, and thought about in different ways and um, the idea is is that and I wonder if this essay is kind of like in that tradition, but like in a sort of like Zizekian, Mark Fisher psychoanalytic sense where it's, it is kind of saying that there have, have been these efforts to like smooth over sexuality, but the sexuality was still there and, and it was everywhere, but it was like a superficial sexuality, right? It was like a, um, I don't know. It was like a, like a, a safe 
commoditized version of the sexual body. And in this safe commoditized version of the sexual body, you get you get a sexual entity that is no longer sexual. And so it like denudes the sexual of the sexual. Is there an essentialism in this with trying to like to like offer an alternative that like approximates the real, right? Like the author does talk about pleasure as being something that can kind of break us out of this this milieu of just pure commoditized imagery where we're all commoditizing ourselves online by smoothing out our own images by using filters and we all pose in the same way and we all use the same captions or we all use the same tone or all of our youtube you know blogs they all have the same affectation to them and and there is like this this smoothing out of everything in our construction of our like acetized imagery so that we can get more people to like and subscribe to our channels or follow us on our on our profiles or whatever is there a sense in which like the sexiness of sex or the pleasure of sex or the real of sex or whatever it is is there is does that provide like a line of flight or an escape or a break with the kind of perpetual motion machine of of commoditized imagery yeah, so in the essay, there's this quote from T.S. Eliot, which I'd never heard before, but it's, um, tradition counts for nothing when it is no longer contested and modified. A culture that is merely preserved is no culture at all. And I had never heard that quote, but it's great. Um, and what I like about it is there's this idea, and this gets back to, you know, what's the appropriate relationship between artist and audience or between audi- artist, artistic object and audience, and that if there's a culture in stasis that's had this kind of smoothing out that you're talking about, right? And homogenization, that an artist is rational to think that their role in that uh, circumstance is to be an antagonist, right? To like stoke something because that culture is in stasis and it's, and it's diseased at that point, right? It needs to be contested. Mm. It needs to be modified. In fact, the only way for even a good culture, a good tradition, to continue to exist and function in its appropriate way in a society is for it to be challenged and then to overcome that challenge, right? Let alone like a purely like a purely diseased culture, uh, which needs to be contested for much more important reasons, or significantly, um, much more significantly contested. So it does seem like in that kind of context, like that's where a film about a bunch of nuns fucking like that's. In that context, much more transgressive in a in an artistically meaningful and valuable way than it would be in a context where in a different kind of context where that kind of smoothing and homogenization has not occurred, right? And it's probably experienced by the audience as being like an affront or like an accusation or like it's being you're being beaten over the head with it. And the problem with like American media criticism seems like, at least in the mainstream, um, is that it takes that kind of antagonistic um, feeling that they get from the film as like a a, re, a bad making feature of the film, and it's like no, think about it. In this context, this is the good thing, right? This is what the film is doing well by sort of exposing that homogenization um, and making you feel uncomfortable, right? Um, mm. It's part of like why David Lynch films are so great. Like I don't think. David Lynch films are great because they necessarily expose something deep-seated about the universe or whatever. Like, maybe sometimes they do or whatever. 
but <laughs> they make you feel uncomfortable in a way that only David Lynch films can. And exploring that feeling is super important. It's about thinking about your relationship between yourself and the and the artistic object, right? And what it, it sort of reveals about you um, that you feel uncomfortable in certain situations. So there's something about sort of having these different kinds of relationships to art that's really important to reflect on, and not just. I think the the essay is well does well to uh, argue that mainstream media criticism is mostly like does this artistic object reflect my beliefs about the world? If it does, exactly, then it's doing yeah. well. And if it doesn't, it's doing poorly. And that's just such a narrow and really honestly childish way to approach mm. art. It's, it's something I've been thinking about for a while. And I'm, and I'm glad you, you, you mentioned this because it's something we've talked about a little bit, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. So it's basically, it, it's something like this. Um, so help me piece this together. I've been thinking a lot about what I, in my mind, I'm framing as like the assessment society. And I, and I would love to write a piece on this or maybe like mm. a small little, you know, 70 page, 80 page little, little book on this. But it's that there's, there's something about, you know, people are talking a lot about, you know, mental health issues and people are talking a lot about like narcissism and people are talking a lot about um, the turn towards like new emotional management regimes and, you know, that there are this emphasis on making ha- being happy and and there's there's this entire industry and and one of the things i'm wondering is, is is there a way to think of it is that we live in in what might be called an assessment society which is that we are constantly assessing ourselves and our place and then i think we're assessing others and we could call it like a judgment society but 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 that sounds maybe like i'm already being critical of it but Something with this assessment society is that we become obsessed with where we're at all the time. And I think what that does is is when that becomes like a dominant um, a dominant orientation in the world is it does make you become self-obsessed. And I think that can lead to a type of narcissism. And I think that that can lead to a type of dissatisfaction because if you're constantly assessing, that means you're constantly looking for something to assess yourself in relation to, right? And um, and I don't want to obviously be like, we need to live in a world where there's no self-awareness. No, of course not. But there's something about assessment that is tied to a superficial culture machine and social production machine that is related to commoditism or assetization that I also want to think about in terms of like maybe leading to this immaturity, which we've talked about, like that there's something about, um, you know how we were talking last week in the shitty minute about like when people criticize, you know, age gaps in relationships sometimes that it's like a self-own because they view themselves as being immature and so it's kind of like they're revealing their own emotional and sexual immaturity in their like projection onto why Florence Pugh, who's an adult who owns a home and like runs a management team, but she clearly is not empowered enough to determine who she has sex with. I think that's her quote or something like that, right? And it makes me wonder if there's some sort of relationship between this tendency towards constant assessment and external conditions that are producing a sort of medium whereby like these commodities reflect back to us a type of immature form in which that assessment takes place 
um, and how this might lead to this thing that you know we've called like the yification of everything, or you know, in with with regards to this article, like this kind of like puritanism or this in a, the smoothing out of of the messiness of bodies and sexuality or something like that. And I don't really know how to fit it all together, but it does feel like there's something about this tendency towards immaturity, and I wonder if it's because consumption is maybe an immature phenomenon, like just pure consumption for consumption's sake does feel to be essentially emotionally immature. So maybe that's like the link into this. I'm not really sure, but there's something... Does that make sense, these different threads that I'm trying to kind of stitch together? Yeah, I mean, I love this idea. Um, And I think it's appropriate that assessment's the term for it because judgment is too broad, right? Um, Because judgments have also the connotation of like informed Right, being informed, having like thoughtful, self-conscious reflection on the thing, right? Um, An assessment is technocratic. It's technocratic. It's also uh, helpfully distinguished from like evaluation, which I think also has this Mm, kind of connotation of being reflective about a thing. Mm. And we both, and both those things, we do judgments and evaluations in very good ways. It's a very broad phenomenon, right? Whereas assessments narrow, and it gets this not only Mm. technocratic, right, but also this kind of like boilerplate list of criteria that something has to meet. Yes. And that criteria is rarely ever reflected upon or like chosen for good reasons. It's sort of handed down, like bureaucratic or whatever. Yeah, it's right? like means testing, you know? Yes, that's a, yeah, that's a, a kind of assessment, you know, with nefarious uh, uses in all sorts of ways. I was thinking mostly from like the perspective of like everything being grades. Like everything is grades now. School has like, <laughs> like the grading system in school has become yeah. so pervasive that it's in every feature of, of life basically now, right? And grades are kind of the ultimate version of this assessment without any reason. It's just for the sake of quantitizing, right? It's why grades exist. No teacher likes grades. Grades are awful. We mm-hmm. do it because administrators need you know, quantified measurements of things. And this gets back to this phenomenon I've talked a lot about on the podcast, which is like the measure of a thing is not the thing. It's a mantra. I think we should have like pasted on our heads when we go into like philosophy mm. classes, especially. The measurement of things is not the thing itself. It's like meeting assessment mm. goals does not mean you've actually done the thing that you're supposedly assessing, which is like having a skill or doing something well or whatever it is, right? Um, and I, at some point, I really want to read with you this essay um, by C.T. Nguyen from the University of Utah called Value Capture. Have I ever talked to you about that essay? No, but I I'm familiar with the term if if Nguyen is using it in a way that like that a lot of people have talked about it. But but yeah, go ahead. I'm not sure if he but he, I think it's somewhat innovative the way he's using it. So his basic idea is like okay, um, there are certain kinds of um, measurement tools, but assessments being one of them, where we use them um, as like a short term heuristic to something that we consider to be intrinsically valuable, but then a value capture happens when the measurement um, is no longer a heuristic towards the value it was supposed to be uh, like a shortcut for, but instead becomes the thing we aim at itself rather than the thing that was supposed to be a measurement of. And so Hmm. um, like one way this can happen in in a totally innocuous way is like when you um, gamify your chores, right? Like you make a game out of doing the laundry or whatever. Like the goal is finish the laundry, but then you replace that goal with like doing it, like having some game, like making the most shots in the laundry basket or whatever. I did that as a kid. 
Um, so I used to have one of those basketball hoops. The, the, it was it was literally exactly. like you know that had the backboard with the stickers all over it. Yeah, <laughs> we just we just still have that. That's a great thing for a kid. Um, it's so good. So that's totally innocuous because the the having the laundry done like or the activity of doing the laundry is not valuable. It's the it's the end goal that is right. Uh, and so as long as your gamified version of it achieves that end goal, it's totally fine. But the problem is what happens when you do that same sort of formula onto activities that are intrinsically meaningful. So Nguyen's main example is like social media discourse. When we gamify those things on social media, we end up um, replacing the original value, which is like communication and knowledge and companionship and whatever, right? With like maximizing likes and, and, and whatnot uh, and gaining certain social media clout and whatever it is. And so the value gets captured by the measurement that's supposed to be a heuristic for it. Um, and another example, that I, I, I teach this essay in, in one of my classes, and I bring up at the end, do you, I ask my students, do you think grades are value capture, are an example of value capture? So the point of mm-hmm. academic learning is to learn, to gain knowledge, to become a more thoughtful and reflective individual and be able to engage in um, thoughtful conversations with other people and, and whatever. I explore, in, in our classes, like explore moral problems so you can become um, like a better citizen and a better person. Uh, and a more thoughtful person. Do you think grades are a heuristic for that? Or do you think that your motivations move away from um, learning and growing and knowledge and towards getting the grade? And almost universally, they say it's the latter, right? This is an example of value Mm. capture. Um, So I do wonder if something like that phenomenon is happening where in your idea of of an assessment society, where the assessments, right, the measurements that are supposed to be a heuristic for something of value are disconnected from that thing of value. And they capture our motivations so that we no longer aim for the thing of original value, but instead aim for satisfying the assessments. And that's why it's sort of so uh, pernicious. Mm. Yeah, I like that. It, it actually fits really well with kind of how I think about Sartre's conception of seriality, right? That it kind of, it, um, it, it, as it's broadened out, it becomes this um, denuded expression of of human embodied action, right? Where it's, you know, he calls it collective bad faith. But it's something that's fed to you from the mediating objects outside of you that kind of orient you in the world with with how you can relate to each other. And it kind of like predetermines what you can say, how you can think, and how you can feel. It doesn't mean that the thing that's valuable is somehow gone, right? It's just that it's covered over by a type of like hollowing out or, or, or a, um, a smoothing out or like an encasing in a new package. And so the question is, is can you like crack the nut and like release the values and, and give them new forms of expression, new, new, um, new avenues for us to connect to them and then to share them and, and, and experience them. Yeah, and I'm, I would gather that for, for Sartre, is it the case that alienation is experienced under seriality? That's the, that's like yeah, the fundamental the, well, ser- or paradigmatic subjective... S- yeah. yeah, seriality is like his working of the term of alienation. Yeah, and that seems to be the major problem with this kind of phenomenon that we're talking about yeah. in contemporary like media circles. It's like we experience these things as alienating because they're disconnected from things that matter to us, that ultimately we think matter, right? Or even if we don't know what matters or what's valuable, we know this isn't it. 
this isn't getting towards anything meaningful. And yet we're kind of treating it as if it is. Yeah. And then what I wonder is then how do, how does the issue of like immaturity fit into this? And I do think that, do you think that it's, do you think that it's explainable by thinking about consumptionism, commodity consumption as being a, just a, like essentially a, uh, uh, an immature form of relating to objects. I mean, it's literally what babies do. I think all the babies do, <laughs> right? Yeah, they consume and then they yeah. cry when they can't consume. Right? It's like the yeah, yeah. very definition of immaturity. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. And then, and then, and then, what I'm wondering then is, so then if. So there's another Sartrean idea. He talks about like the commodity. He calls it the practical inert object, which is that it's imbued with like action, but that it's like solidified. So it's kind of like his reworking of the Marxian conception of stored labor. You work it into an object and then your labor is stored in it. For Sartre, he kind of broadens it out a little bit. And it's more about your, um, your thoughts, your intentions, whatever. They're all imbued into this object. And then they get kind of like encased within that serial process that we were just talking about right but what confronts us in the object is what he calls the return of stolen praxis so what confronts us is other people's and your own and society writ large is like energy and intention and activity and time that's imbued into that object so that what confronts you is like a distorted form he calls it counterfinality, but it's like a, a distorted form of what was stored in the thing. So we could think of it like um, like a book, like a book might have like intentions from the author, but it's like stolen from the author and then it's placed on the market and now it's fed back to us in this commoditized package. And so what's confronting us is like the return of that intention, you know, maybe the author wrote it to like change people's minds and inspire them to be better humans and love people better. But it's just consumed to, you know, an audience because it's packaged and it's a New York Times bestseller and uh, it becomes a happiness manual or something like that, right? Um, it's that activity of counterfinality where the object is fed back to us in a particular way. So that means that what's confronting us is a type of reflection. It's, it's a type of like social reflection that is being fed back to us in the form of like a social reflection imbued in the commodities. And of course, they're not just like singular, you know, like when, when a commodity confronts us, it's like this potentially infinite object of, of things that can be fed to us. But nevertheless, um, it's packaged and it's marketed with only like certain characteristics. And even then, those certain characteristics will land on people in different ways at different times, you know, depending on how they're using it or who they are and what their experience is with that object, you know, like a coffee mug. I've got a coffee mug in front of me right now and it says Little Miss Naughty on it. That is going <laughs> to have a different experience to my consumption of it than to somebody else's, but there's also a universal experience of it as well, right? But it's because the meanings that are coming to me in the phrase Little Miss Naughty are like social meanings that that are coming to me in the forms of like this return of... of stolen humanity um the the expression is or stole the stolen the return of like stolen expressive humanity or something like that but um but so then it makes me think that there's also like this mirror effect that's happening and so i'm wondering then in like a lacanian sense if there's like this perpetuation of a mirror staging that's happening with this rampant commodity 
or commoditization of imagery that then like keeps us trapped at like this infantile mirror stage because it's all based on this just a particular experience of what's returning to us in an immature package rather than having the capacity for self-reflection in other ways that might like I'm thinking of like a cheesy term like elevate us or transform us or, or something but but that might be different from just the simple commodity pleasure cycle you know yeah I think it's appropriate to, to name it a cycle right because there's this kind of reinforcing feedback loop where individuals who are the constitute the audience see that their relationship with the artistic object as being merely one of consumption right um, means that creators, if they accept that sort of, you know, artist audience relationship, then just try to fulfill that, like those needs, like in the way that a parent would fulfill the needs of the, of the baby by just feeding them food when they need it or whatever. Right. Um, hmm. and then there's no way to get out of that cycle because if the artist takes a more transgressive or accusatory or antagonistic role that's rejected by the audience it's not fulfilling their needs right um and if an audience member wants something transgressive and sort of yearns for like being challenged or for something new to sort of stoke thought in them not just be passive in this reception of the same old same old homogenized thing they're not going to get that right because that's not on offer so it's like there's no clear way to like back out of that right although i think um that's you know kind of like a formal analysis in practice actually lots and lots of great films are made that are antagonistic towards these and we were talking about a few months ago how past lives i think you talked about it as being an example of mature uh filmmaking about romance and i hadn't thought about it in those terms but it made a lot of sense to me when you when you said that Mm -hmm. because it kind of moves out of it doesn't have the conception of romance that most American films tend to, which is you yearn for somebody and the world, you know, mm-hmm. tragically acts against you so that you can't have that thing you're yearning for. But eventually you overcome that and you conquer it and you get the thing. Right. And then euphoria occurs mm-hmm. and it doesn't do that. Right. It doesn't give you the sort of passive um, the the sort of the story that you could passively receive and then feel like you've had your meal. You ate your Gerber baby food and now you can move on mm-hmm. to the next thing right no it challenges you and makes you think about um you know it both like celebrates romance and, and speaks to its importance but also says like there's other things that are important too and maybe in some cases more important and there's a the tragedy is not the world stopping you from getting what you want but um but instead mm-hmm. more about how there's just conflicts of values that occur in life and sometimes being the mature person means um, sort of relegating the thing that that maybe you have the greatest desire for or that sort of hurts you the most. So um, lots of films do this kind of mature thing. But, you know, the mainstream ones seem like they uh, do the opposite. They reinforce the infantilization thing, the immaturity thing you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, do, it does seem... And, and then it makes me wonder... So then what's, is cinema somehow, like mainstream cinema, is it becoming more of like a handmaiden to Instagram culture? 
or TikTok culture. And and there was an interview recently with um, is it David Simon who created? Hold on, I'm gonna find it real quick. I'm on my Twitter. Who said this? It wasn't David Simon? David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos. That's right. Okay. I knew it was. I knew it was a David. Um, okay, so he says that the recent golden age of like quality TV is at an end because execs are telling him to dumb down his shows, and he's being warned not to make TV that requires an audience to focus. <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad when I read that um, because he he's just saying you know the quiet part out loud that that people have known about for a while here, but it's like. I think somebody retweeted something and it was like, uh, or they like quote tweeted it and they were like, um, they were like, yeah, basically TV shows now need to have enough sort of entertainment value so that you can scroll on your phone through your socials. But then there's like a really clear musical or emotional cue so that you look up at the right time. So you can just like catch the, whatever the beat is in the story that like, incites you or excites you in whatever way and then you just go back to scrolling and that's what like tv shows are and i do wonder if a show like euphoria is that right like i do wonder if like i haven't seen it so i i I don't know but i've seen some like video essays on it so i know that the cinematography is really interesting and the lighting is really interesting but they're using like like a slick veneer of of sexuality and excitation and sensuality but i i can't help but wonder because of its popularity it then makes me a little critical and make me think like "Mm, maybe it's so popular because it fits so well within this new digestible like attention deficit form of media production and consumption right where you have like a dramatic relationship that somehow appears on screen it's about teenagers so of course it's gonna fucking be that right so i don't (laughs) want to sound like the old fogey that's like teenagers aren't allowed to feel things no of course but but like i wonder if the reason that it's creating such a um like a like a cultural conversation is because it just fits so well within this within this with within this like form of how it is that binge watching takes place and i'll be honest like i don't like it i really don't i I really do not like i don't like to just be like what's the next show that we're watching and just have something on like i it actually like goes against everything i believe in but it's also something that you just kind (laughs) of do you know and maybe maybe this is where my value my values are running into uh contradictions what were you gonna say no and it's also just the second screen thing isn't just um about like not wanting to pay attention or whatever. It's also like, like you were talking about this need to have something on so that you don't have to think, <laughs> right? If you have enough yeah. things in the environment going on that you don't have to actually think. I mean, I experienced this where I listen to podcasts when I'm doing most like mundane <laughs> activities, like the laundry yeah. or chores or mowing the lawn or taking yeah, the Yeah, God forbid walk. you just be with your thoughts while you're mowing the lawn. <laughs> and then when you are just with your thoughts, right? You're like, oh my god, this is amazing! Like, I should do this more often. <laughs> but, my my know. partner and I, she she refers to it as raw dogging the world. Where like I'll just go out and <laughs> I just like leave my headphones. She's like, do you just out there just raw dogging the world? You know? She's like, you psycho. I'm like, yeah, you know, I went for a walk without headphones. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I got to use that raw dogging the world. Can we talk? Can we make that the title of the uh, podcast? <laughs> title title of the title of the episode definitely definitely raw dog in the world that's got SEO potential I think 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's funny. Like, I... So, I've... We've recently moved into a new place, and we've got, like, a little garden, and there's, like, a little, like, carport and stuff like that, and... Um, so there's shitloads of trees around, and so there's, like, shitloads of leaves. So, like, me as, like, you know, moving into his middle age of his life is starting to, like, embrace the, um, like, the the aging. And I'm like, you know what I want for my birthday, babe? I want a leaf blower. Like, that's what I want for my birthday. So it was the only thing I wanted for my birthday. It was this three-in-one leaf blower slash mulcher. Because I don't, I, like, I don't care about things. But, like, tools I like, Right. And like it's, it's such a nerd. We just got this tool yesterday that's like a power cleaner to clean our like um, – because you know when you rent a steam cleaner, they're like really expensive. But we got like this cheap one from Kmart for like 100 bucks. and uh, she sent me a video today of how dirty the sofa arm was. And she's like, I did this last night because I went to a show last night. She's like, I, I did this last night and it's just like this mucky water and it felt so good that I was like, now that's a cool tool you know that we got for the house like that that i'm into i don't need anything else but a fucking tool for cleaning the sofa or for blowing up and mulching the leaves like that i'm into um but like like i'm kind of like embracing this this kind of like part of of my life and um i totally lost my train of thought what the fuck were we even talking about i just got so excited about the, oh yeah oh yeah but what i'm doing <laughs> yeah when i'm when i'm doing the tools like sometimes i like to raw dog the world and i just and out there and and I do find myself like really getting into like ooh I can go to this corner and then I'm going to and then I'm going to blow the leaves that way and then I'm going to do this and then and then I'm trying to listen to like an audiobook maybe at the same time and I I totally just don't pay attention to the audiobook and then I'm like well I might as well just like either zone out and not be totally hooked into the leaf blowing or um I ought to just like like hook into the leaf blowing and be really into like the strategy of it and because i'm such a fucking nerd i get really into it you know like and i and i and i play with the leaves i'm like i'm gonna blow them this way and then i catch them and and i find myself doing that but then that requires me raw dogging the world so when i'm raw dogging the world i actually do find like a lot of enjoyment and play that can come with it but very often i don't do that i like i don't let myself do that i'm like i gotta consume more i got and part of this is just the curse of like academia too it's like you're always behind you need more information i gotta know more and and so that's just like our curse that we fucking need to deal with and maybe get over at some point in your life but um but yeah like there is something beautiful about raw dog in the world and if we just let ourselves do it you know yeah no, there's there's often this um so you know that the, the famous uh uh, event by by Wittgenstein where he like would tell students to quit um, grad school in philosophy and go and become like a construction worker or whatever hmm. when they sought his advice um, and there's often hmm. this kind of uh, interpretation that the that the point of that is like there's something ignoble about academia and it's much more noble to work with your hands or whatever and I always thought hmm. I don't know what Wittgenstein meant by that but I always thought like that's a false dichotomy. I think whatever, whatever is wrong with academia isn't that it's devoted to thought. It's the parts of it that aren't really devoted to thought, but to regurgitation of like old thought <laughs> and not really critically mm. thinking. Because actually, yeah. when I'm raw dogging in the world, that's when the best forms of thought happen, right? I'm actually yes. engaged with the world and thinking about it. And not always about like, you know, highfalutin like metaphysics or whatever. I guess, you know, philosophers might do that while they're mowing the lawn or whatever, but most people don't. But still, people are like engaged with the activity. They're fully exercising it. They're in a flow state or whatever, right? And there's something 
extremely satisfying about being actively engaged and a participant in the world rather than this kind of passive reception of things with, without being um, thoughtfully engaged in them. So, yeah. This is fucking it. Yes. And it's the same thing with art, yeah. right? You want to be engaged with it actively as yes. a participant and not just passively receiving it. I was talking about this with my partner last night, and I was like, babe, I was like, like, I just want to live. I don't want to exist, you know? <laughs> and I... And I feel like I feel like in, in, in this the, the conspiratorial version, you know, that you might get is like, and the elites want you to just exist and consume, and it's just kind of like the amusing ourselves to death, and then like the Wally kind of story that's like, and and there's probably truth to that. There's probably some truth to that, right? Mm-hmm. That it's like, yeah, you just remain at the level of being a, a, a consumer citizen, and that's fine. And um, we'll give you the veneer that you're engaged politically and socially and like you actually matter. But um, that's just like your own – it's like your own um, fucking opiate, right? The opiate for the masses is it's not religion or maybe religion in the form of commodity consumption or something like that, right? Um, there's like, like a version of that. Um, but even if you don't take it as like the conspiratorial version, there's a sense in which like de facto that is kind of what happens, and you just kind of – and this is what seriality is. This is what collective bad faith is for Sartre is that you you kind of don't become an active participant. You you aren't contributing. You aren't engaged. You're, you're just um, receiving or you're just going along with the flow or you're just kind of like allowing the external dictates of what's valuable to determine your orientation and your action in the world. And like – but like living, you know, that's that's the shit. And this is where, you know, you can totally see like the radical freedom, Sartrean stuff that shines through me. I'm like, I just want to fucking live and experience that shit, you know, with everything. <laughs> yeah, dude. In total agreement. In praise of raw dogging the world. That's what the Carlos episode. <laughs> I did there was there was something that the art the last thing I'll say. Um what did what did the author say? It was something about the difference between engagement, um, like engagement. Oh, yeah, here it is. It's a quote from Fisher, from Mark Fisher. So it's um, like the author saying, so the unreg- unregulated market forces that drive late capitalism depend on tire- entirely on the process of turning all acts, all aspects of existence into a consumer exercise. They depend entirely on our willingness to suppress the body, the very material nature of our existence in the world, and our connection to others, and assign all cultural objects and experiences a monetary value, effectively emptying out the possibility of bodily implication and engagement from our experience with art and media. There's no place for the sex scene here, especially for the kind of ecstatic, corporeal sex scenes with erotic thrillers of the 90s. Fisher is invaluable in our understanding on this point. And here's the quote from Fisher. In the conversion of practices and rituals into merely aesthetic objects, the beliefs of previous cultures are objectively ironized, transformed into artifacts, and all that is left is the consumer spectator. Trudging through the ruins and the relics, this turn from belief to aesthetics, from engagement to spectatorship, is held to be one of the virtues of capitalist realism. And it's that. It's from, from belief to aesthetics or to like maybe mere aesthetics from engagement to spectatorship 
And there's something there's something in that that I think kind of hits at what we're talking about. And then this is why, and this is the last thing I'll say. I'm so interested in the 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 theoretical works of a um, of a theater director and theorist by the name of Augusto Ball, who wrote about something called theater of the oppressed. And he talks about the breakdown of the spectator and the actor and the actor. And and he was really involved in like you know doing like invisible theater and and sort of like immersive theater experiences because he wanted to embody that breakdown between the spectator and the actor and in the creation of what he calls the spect actor and it's this idea that that there's no like power relation and that there's no like just mere spectatorship or passivity on the part of the audience but that you're actually engaged and and him and his troupe they tried to like create art and performance that was intentionally doing that explicitly but i think that there's even like there's like an internal work that you can do as an act of rebellion, maybe, maybe not, I think you can, that that refuses the the pull of just becoming a spectator or of 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 like losing your engagement with the world. Whether that's like, you know, um how it is that you mow the lawn, or whether that's, you know, how it is that you engage with a film. And um and I think that you can have small victories at an individual and in like a community level, um, even if you know we can still bemoan like mass media production and consumption. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to do my typical thing where I bring everything back to empiricism and utilitarianism, but like, there's something about um, thinking that the only thing you can really, the only way to measure the value of a society or a social order is by um, measuring the quantified amount of preference satisfaction that can be achieved, which is basically like the the marriage of capitalism, utilitarianism, and empiricism, right? Um, mm. Means that you're going to think about individuals' role or place in a social order as being a passive one, right? Receiving the preference satisfaction delivered by market forces, right? And that's so mm. alienating. And the fact that it's so alienating is proof that those systems are not reflective of the real world, right? We want to be actively engaged in meaningful activities. And we get alienated when we don't do those things in any arena, whether it's art or mowing the lawn, right? The same phenomenon of alienation occurs when we don't get to um, be involved with uh, meaningful activities, right? So if that's happening, then we should try to, you know, reform the order, which creates that kind of an outcome. Amen. Yeah. Um, so I'll share the link in the show notes so that people can check that out. Um, if you want to read the article, it's, um, you know, uh, a really good read. It's a pretty long little read, but, um, but uh, I would say definitely worth it. And uh, there's a bunch of hyperlinks throughout it that you can also go down the rabbit hole of other things that, uh, that, they, that they talk about. So... But, uh, yep, the puritanical eye, hypermediation, sex on film, and the disavowal of desire. Uh, any last thoughts, or was your uh, your rant about utilitarian and capitalism the one? That's the one. <laughs> and empiricism. Yep. That's the one, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, let's move into our final segment, which is the sticky leaves, where one of us gets to share something with us that is giving us meaning in a hypermediated world where all we are is just existing consumers destined to assess ourselves until we die. Troy, what's giving you meaning? I, I didn't plan it this way, but as always, our shitty minutes and sticky leaves always end up being not just orthogonal, but deeply constitutive of the main topic that we were discussing. Uh, I just finished Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie's uh, series, The Curse, uh, yeah. last week. 
the finale aired, and it was one of the most bonkers finales I've ever seen, maybe the most bonkers finale I've ever seen. Wow. And I w- and I want to say that I think that Nathan Fielder is the Franz Kafka of our age, and the <laughs> curse, as well as the rehearsal, but especially the curse, is um, the the contemporary Kafka esque. It was the best exploration of the of the Kafka esque. This series is not at all serialized in the in the Sartrean sense that we've been talking about on this episode. It's absolutely sto- a, an attempt to stoke the thought and to have a somewhat antagonistic relationship with the audience and to ask the audience to do work. You have to think and you have to be actively engaged mm. in participating. I don't think I've ever talked about a series with people that I'm watching it with more than this series. And not just about like, Really? What do you think's gonna happen? The Game of Thrones style. Like, what do you think's gonna happen? Like, what's the Mm-mm-mm. what are the plot events gonna be? Right? What's the mystery that's gonna be solved or whatever? There is a mystery to the curse a bit, um, but it's not a mystery box show. Talking more just about what is the meaning of this thing, not in the sense of like what does it represent, but what is it doing? What is this series doing in what it's um, done on film? I think it's absolutely brilliant. I loved it so much. It's one of my favorite things of the past few years, probably. Um, mm. I, I can't speak highly enough of it, and the and the finale is just so crazy. Like I knew it was leading up to something bonkers <laughs> and crazy. I'll just say yeah. this to to sort of um, stoke the fire a little bit in you and maybe in the audience as well. What did you think about Mother when it came out? The the um. The, uh, Aronofsky film? Yeah, the Aronofsky, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Javier. Oh, Hogan I loved film. it. It's it's a fucking allegory of the Bible and a retelling of creation and history and humanity. I fucking loved it. It's, it's one of my favorite films ever. I think it's absolutely brilliant. So good. And I, I don't know that I've ever had a more joyous time watching a movie than that one. And it's, the yeah, it is batshit crazy, <laughs> too. It's the culmination, that like final sequence is insane. Yes, the curse is, is like that. Not in the sense of like, oh, wow. it ha- has aesthetic features that are very similar. It's very different and unique and totally unlike any other TV series I've ever seen, both in formal and um, content-based ways. But in terms of the joy that I had watching it and, the, and, the, and what it asks of the audience and the way that it invites you towards this kind of active participation without, it neither dumbs down nor condescends. In the same way, I think mm. Mother is, is neither condescending nor obviously definitely not dumbing down. Um, the curse, I don't think, is an allegory, although parts of it may be allegorical. But I think it has that I felt the same kind of way about um, the curse as I did Mother. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. And I just think Nathan Fielder's work in this series, I knew he was more than just a, a cringe comedian after the rehearsal. Mm because the rehearsal was so great, but he stepped it up another level with the curse. And Benny Safdie, I think, the Safdie brothers, kind of their dynamic and their ability to um, play with anxiety in unique ways that aren't mm. just about like cringiness, but really exploring deep-seated anxiety it was so such an effective marriage with, uh, with the stuff that he does. It's really brilliant. I can't wait for you to watch it so we can talk about it. How many, how many episodes is it? Uh, 10, I think. Okay. I'm going to get through it as quickly as possible, and then we we have to do an episode on it. We do. Um, don't do okay. too much, though. No? Let it simmer? A little bit. 
Like, don't binge okay. it in a couple of nights. I mean, if you want to do it, like, do what you want. But I, I think sitting with it a little bit. I don't have time to binge it in a couple nights, bro. I'm talking. <laughs> no. Um... <laughs> you gotta watch it. With, you gotta but... watch it with Sean too. Yeah. Okay. We just started watching the new True Detective, which I think is only going to be like an episode a week. Have you started watching that yet? No, but it's my next thing. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that. Yeah, I think they're only doing like an episode a week, right? Because I think there was only yeah, one episode. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that'll be nice because it forces you to sit with it, which right. is a good thing. But um, you've talked about The Curse with me a couple times now. We were going to start it the other night, but... I feel like you got to be in the right mood for something like this. You got to be there. You got to be present. You got to be ready. So oh, yeah. I think yeah. we're just waiting to, to carve out. Yeah, we're waiting to carve out this space. And I actually had like a little bit of hesitance, not hesitance, but I know the anxiety that the Safty brothers are able to produce in me. <laughs> and so I'm also like, I didn't know if the curse was similarly going to do that. And I know the awkwardness of what Fielder can produce in the audience. So I'm like, wait. So I kind of was like, awkwardness and anxiety you know like we're just coming out of the holidays things were pretty crazy and hectic so it's like let us let us in easy here let's find the time when we're ready to embrace the awkward anxiety of the world um but yeah i'm super fucking keen yeah that's a good point i think it's, it's definitely the kind of thing you want to be in the right mood for um and be sort of mentally prepared in like a a fully stable place so you can let yourself experience the uncomfortableness <laughs> yeah, yeah. appropriately, which is also why I think it's not a bingeable show because you do feel mm. uncomfortable, but uncomfortable, not in the way that like cringe comedies do where it's just uncomfortable, uncomfortability. You can then purge, mm-hmm. right? You don't purge the uncomfortability here. If anything, um, like the rehearsal mm. was unique because you had this uncomfortability you had to sit with and you couldn't purge it the way a cringe comedy would let you. This is different in the sense that it's, why I think it's kind of Kafka-esque, is you sit with it when the way you you sit with like the trial, where you're like, you wonder about the world and like Mm. the mean and meaning in life and and all these kinds of stuff. It's, yeah, it's it's got that kind of, I think, really unique, um, depthful kind of uncomfortability. Uh, But it is still uncomfortability. So it's not the kind of thing you want to sit with. You'd be like, be like enmeshed in all the time yeah 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 okay uh well then let's plan to do an episode in the next few weeks here um once once we're able to get through it yeah and it's not plot heavy so okay. um there's no reason like why you'd have to well i'd have to remember a whole bunch of stuff from it um okay cool yeah. well uh i will i will keep you posted on how we go through through that so well, sick. Um, so for all of y'all out there, make sure you check out The Curse. If you're watching The Curse too, hit us up. Let, let us know what you think about it. Let us also know what you think about uh, sex and movies and um, what's going on with everything that we kind of talked about in the main segment. Do you think that there's a plot? Is there a conspiratorial plot to just amuse us, keep us in amusement forever so that we don't actually have any sort of political agency or we're not able to contest the dominant political political economic order? It could be. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but you can add us at uh, owls underscore at underscore Don on Twitter and on Insta. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, as Troy said, if you can throw some pennies our way, that would really help us in the production of the episode. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And you know what we should do, Troy, which we haven't done in a while? We should do, now that we're back up and running, a patron-chosen episode. 
Yeah, yeah we got to get one of those up. So we'll do that. Okay. We'll get one of those up on the page. So, yeah. So the way that that works is uh, Troy will put out a call. If you are a patron, you'll get a notification that's like, hey, give us suggestions for a topic. Then we'll choose like three or four of those. Well, then we'll create a poll. And then whichever episode gets the most votes, that's the one we'll talk about. So uh, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn or pay attention to your email or whatever. And, um, and uh, yeah, we'll do a patron chosen episode soon. So sick. Um, well, I think I've pretty much covered everything. Unless there's anything that I'm forgetting to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Dasta Dania, Mary Fancy. Yeah.